Rude Awakenings, read by Achan Satito and Nick Scott. This is the first chapter of an audiobook of their pilgrimage on foot around the Indian Buddhist holy places, to be issued as a weekly offering, chapter by chapter. Each chapter will start with a brief intro like this, read by myself, Sam Ford, bringing the listener up to date with the Achan and Nick's journey. We start in November 1990. Chapter 1 Pilgrim's Way Achan Suchito There's something devilish about that sound. A deliberately provocative prod to assail my meditation. When the eyes are closed and the mind turned inward, you feel that the world should leave your unguarded hearing alone. It doesn't, let alone such lip-smacking in the middle of the night on a rooftop in New Delhi when I'm seeking to contemplate higher things. It must be just beside my left shoulder. A slow turn and opening of the eyes reveals only the brown-black murk that is a slurry of night sky, smoke and dust, and a tree back beyond the roof whose branches extend overhead. In front of me, beyond the parapet, is the street, still half alive with a cycle rickshaw driver rocking and aimlessly pirouetting his bike while sporadically conversing with someone squatting on the road. A few people on the pavement, children mainly, asleep in blankets. Scraps of paper, tumbling, spasmodically, when the dull air rolls in its sleep. New Delhi's Chelmsford Road, at night, half-lit with yellow sodium lights, lacks the energy of a full-blown hell. No slobbering imps here. No, the sound... Again, it comes from behind and above, something dark, moving, hanging upside down under the tree, flapping, beating leathery wings, then still and chopping. Giant fruit bat, comments Nick who knows, when I go over to where he is slumped. Eating upside down is anyway no more contrary than sitting and pacing on a roof in the moonlight. It depends what position you take. For us, this full moon night of November 2nd is the opposite of the night. In the time of the Buddha, the Sangha would sit up on these moon nights meditating and giving talks until dawn. In the forest monasteries of Thailand and Britain, we still carry out this observance, or attempt to. Having arrived in New Delhi only yesterday at two in the morning, after a flight from Heathrow, we're jet-lagged in a time warp. But we might as well get used to it. Disorientation is going to be a normal mind state for the next six months at least, if we survive. Our aim is to walk around the Buddhist holy places Uttar Pradesh and Bihar and then head for Kathmandu. Avoid the main roads, wander across country living on alms food and whatever. It's a bit risky said Nick a few months ago. I've made out my will, given away any money that I had left in Britain. I can arrange a car for you, Ravi, an Indian guest at my home monastery had exclaimed. Bihar is very dangerous. Bandits, murderers, no one travels on foot in Bihar. Or sleeps out in the open. However, Bihar and the eastern section of Uttar Pradesh were the middle country the land where the Buddha was enlightened and wandered teaching for 45 years. Bihar even comes from the old word Vihara, meaning a dwelling place for a Buddhist monk. Remains of some of the old Viharas were still visible. 
After the death of the Buddha, the middle country, then called Magadha, prospered as the centre of the empire of the Buddhist monarch Ashoka, 268-231 BCE. Some of the stupas that he erected over portions of the master's ashes, as well as towering pillars engraved with the emperor's edicts on righteous conduct, still loom over the paddy fields of the Ganges plain. Even after his death and the dissolution of the empire, the wisdom of the Buddha continued to mould the culture. From the middle of the first millennium CE, great Buddhist universities such as Nalanda, a light of learning unparalleled in the world in its time, arose in this region. It fell in 1200 to Turkic raiders. And now, with a 26% literacy rate, there is some justification for Ravi's comment that only the Buddha could have got enlightened in Bihar, the people are the stupidest in India, and if when you're driving at night you come across someone lying across the road, don't stop, drive over them. It's a ruse, you see. Sometimes it's a woman with a baby in her arms by the side of the road. You stop, and they come out of the bushes and jump on you. Well, really. Anyway, there was never any question in our minds but that we would be walking. We were going on a pilgrimage, not a sightseeing tour. So the logic was to walk and be absorbed into India as much as absorbing it. A pilgrimage has to be about surrendering oneself to allow a new centre of being to develop, to realise, rather than to travel, is a pilgrim's aim and momentum. It's difficult to keep that clear. Yesterday night, as we were arriving above India in the tightly controlled space of a DC-10, the fake detachment of soaring above it all had given me a last chance to recollect the pilgrimage in visionary terms. Below was the arena for spiritual development, the turmoil to be at peace with, the determined journey to no apparent destination. Then began the slow wheeling down from that lofty space. Soon I knew the mind would be wanting things to go my way, squabbling over petty inconveniences, hungering after trivia. According to Indian religious thought, it was inevitable. Forgetting one's higher nature is an essential part of the spiritual journey. Down we had plunged from where Delhi seemed to be a cluster of gems twinkling on the dark breast of Mother India into the pattern of lights on the airfield and the concrete maze of human structures eager to pull us in. India had absorbed so many on this Ganges plain. The Aryans and flowed down here in the second millennium BCE with sacrifice and liturgy to benevolent gods. She had slowly replaced their deities with a divinity of shifting forms and a thousand names. Long after the Aryans, the Greeks had inched in, thought better of it, and returned to more manageable philosophies. She captured some of their generals and made them into Indian kings. Iranians and Afghans and Turks and Mongols had stormed down this plain to grab and plunder. She had swallowed and digested their cultures and languages. Emperors marched up and down. Alexander, Ashoka, Kanishka, the Guptas, Harsha, Babur, Akbar and, in absentia, Victoria. The remains of their visions were still crumbling into separatism and ethnic conflict. The land had borne millions of farmers, traders and administrators occupying one of a thousand sub-castes and clans, a hundred thousand saints, pilgrims and yogis, following one of a thousand gods, gurus, prophets or scriptures. Here, Mother India murmured the human fugue in a hundred languages. No wonder Indian scriptures and epics assume that all the world is contained in this land. There was a thud of wheels, a slow turning and then the clank of the stairs connecting to the hull. The midnight transit through customs offered a last moment to step back and cast a cool eye on circumstance. Then, with a friendly nod, 
from the Sikh customs man we were in and moving. Nick Scott It was when we got outside the airport building that we really knew we were in India. We were immediately in a crowd being hassled by taxi drivers, beggars and young men promoting different hotels. It was warm, although it was midnight, and there was that distinctive urban Indian smell, somewhere between spices, incense and stale urine. Following advice we had been given by a friend, we escaped our assailants, skirted the yellow ambassador taxis and the shiny airport coaches looking for the cheap option, the ex-serviceman's bus, into New Delhi. There were four of them, battered oblong metal boxes standing side by side in the gloom some way off from the terminal. As we got close, we could tell which was going first by the two passengers and two crew sitting inside in the darkness. Looking closely into the others as we passed, I could see they too had crews, but huddled asleep under blankets. We clambered aboard. Inside, there were two rows of simple metal seats with the minimum of padding between red plastic covers and the hardness of their bases. There was no door for the passenger doorway. Half the cover of the oily engine was missing and there was no glass in the side windows. The bus must have been waiting for our plane because once we and three others had boarded, the engine was coaxed into shuddering life, a few dim internal lights came on and we pulled out for New Delhi. As we rattled along the nearly empty road, the conductor made his way down the aisle. Presumably an ex-serviceman, he now wore a simple uniform of khaki shirt and pyjama bottoms, flip-flops and an old scarf wrapped round his head. He sold us two tickets printed crudely on thick paper. The excitement of arriving and the nostalgia of being back in India made everything seem romantic. We shuddered along, looking out on a country neither of us had seen for fifteen years. The empty streets bathed in the light of the moon, giving our passage an extra sense of magic. Every so often the bus would shudder to a stop in the middle of nowhere to let strange characters get on or off. A fat man struggling down the steps with an impossible bundle and boxes tied up in string, or an old lady arising out of the shadows with a shopping bag. Each time a cry of, Jello, let's go, from the conductor, would set the bus off again like a spooked cow. Eventually it was our turn. The bus stopped and the conductor cried out, Gonud Zirkus. We clambered down with our bags to the pavement and with another, Jello, it was our turn to be strange characters exiting into the night. At Chancecito. It was a relief to get walking after the long flight, striding along the spacious tree-lined pavement, skipping the potholes, dodging the debris, with only a shoulder bag bouncing on my back. Crows croaked down from the trees. Rickshaw drivers swooped, begging for business. We threw them a few smiles and jogged along cheerfully. Where are you going? was their mantra. More a slogan than a query. Where are you going? In the short term, we were heading for the Sri Lankan Buddhist Pilgrim's Rest on Chelmsford Road. Is it odd to find a pilgrim's rest house in the centre of a modern city? Not in India, where the sacred has always hidden itself in the mundane. Pilgrims have been moving through this world for centuries. They are the earthworms in the culture's soil that break down the deposits of religions, digest them and render them into living forms. They keep its spirituality alive. It was a translation of the accounts of Fa Shen and Xuanzang, two of the Chinese pilgrims who once fared through this land, that verified that the Buddha had been a real man, who had lived in India rather than in legend. For about 500 years, 
India's greatest son, had been buried under Hinduism. Even nowadays, the Buddha hardly figures in the folk culture of India. Here, Buddhism is seen as an aspect of Hinduism, or as a religious teaching to a breakaway movement within the untouchable caste. Having turned away from gods and rituals and castes, the Buddha is her greatest outcast. He had to be. Despite various conquests and changes of religion, the Buddha is the one whom India hasn't managed to break down and digest. This is because Buddhism went international in the Ashokan age. Apart from the scores of Chinese, pilgrims have come from Tibet, Burma, Sri Lanka, even Britain, to trace the Master's footsteps or study his teachings in his country of origin. Even nowadays, followers of the Buddha from many countries find a few weeks in their lives to turn things around by bussing between the holy places. A touch of the home country, a sense of support and familiarity helps in all this sometimes hectic journeying. Hence, rest houses, sponsored by governments and institutions. We banged on the steel door at the entrance at two o'clock in the morning. The watchman shuffled to the gate and let us in without a murmur. We signed the book, followed him across a courtyard illuminated in the centre of which was a Bodhi tree, with a Buddha image sitting serenely underneath it. The padlocks were removed from the doors of a couple of rooms in the simple whitewashed block that extended along one side of the courtyard. In my cell, the light switch worked. The light bulb revealed a bare cement-floored room with one bed, even water next door. Not bad at all. I had brought a water-filtering gadget with me, with which I scrupulously filtered water from the tap. It was an act of bravado. I was eager to show the great Indian gut-rot that I had come prepared. Then we had our plans against being hypnotised by the spells of India. No sightseeing, no rushing around a hot, teeming city, just business. Book a ticket on the train to Gorakhpur to get us to the Nepalese border so that we could begin the pilgrimage in southern Nepal at Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha. We both were travelling light and drab, unlikely to attract pickpockets. I just had the robes that I was standing up in, a shoulder bag containing my arms bowl, with a few spare clothes and medicines for the pair of us in it, an old lightweight sleeping bag, a Buddha image, and various sacred objects given by people for me to use on the pilgrimage. Nick and I had known each other for about ten years, so I wasn't expecting any major personality clashes. Admittedly, we had different styles. I was more reticent, plodding, and tenacious by nature, as befitted my birth sign of the ox. Nick was definitely a dragon. Spontaneous, ebullient, but erratic. But then, as he put it, later, we made a dangerous combination. He would come up with crazy ideas, and I would resolve to stick to them, come what may. Nick Scott. The next morning, I woke to that awful retching sound the Indians make as part of their pre-dawn cleansing ritual. India might be pretty dirty, but the people themselves are into personal cleanliness in a big way. They soap and sluice themselves down with buckets of water a couple of times a day and clean parts the rest of us never think of. First thing every morning, they get to work on their throats and noses snorting and retching, a welcome to the day. I lay in bed listening. He had got to the nose now and was snorting loudly. I reckoned it must be the janitor who had let us in the night before. In the background was the noise of the street getting underway, people shouting, traffic, the constant refrain of rickshaw bells and horn blasts. There are always two opposing possible views of India. The night before, it had seemed magical. Now, 
after only four hours' sleep, I had the other view. Our arrival in the middle of the night seemed like a pleasant dream from which I had been rudely awakened. Memories of the last time I had arrived in New Delhi from England came to me. It had been with a friend called Fred, and we had come overland. We had set off in the summer of 72 when I was 19, catching a cheap student flight to Amsterdam, having told everyone we were going round the world. In fact, we had got cold feet in the last month and had decided to go only to Amsterdam and then come back with some excuse. But after a week in Amsterdam, we got up the courage to hitchhike to Greece, and once there, just kept on going. We somehow hitched the whole way to India, arriving in New Delhi on a local truck in time for Christmas. Now I remembered how unpleasant it had been then. It was my birthday, and we both had dysentery for the first time. We lay there in our hotel room, one on each bed, feeling miserable. Eventually Fred got into Hinduism and gurus, very much the thing then, and went back after a year. He became a disciple of Sri Chinmoy, and so did the lady I had left behind, my girlfriend from my teenage years. I stayed away for three years, and got home in time to see them married, with other devotees singing sweet devotional songs. This time I had come with a Buddhist monk from one of a group of four Theravadan Buddhist monasteries now established in England. Theravada Buddhism is a tradition known for the simplicity and austerity of its practice, so this would be a very different trip. Ajahn Suchito was the second senior monk at the biggest monastery and known for his intellectual abilities. He edited the newsletter, wrote the books, understood the more difficult scriptures, and gave wonderful talks. He had a great sense of humour, and I was very fond of him. However, eyebrows had been raised when I said who I was going with. Ajahn Suchito was also known for his disinterest in the material world. He could be a liability with tools, had trouble doing things the rest of us found easy, and not so much lent as toppled toward the ascetic view of spiritual practice. It should be an interesting journey. I could hear him up and pottering about next door. He had probably already done an hour's meditation. I reluctantly got up to join him, with a feeling that it was going to be a difficult day. Then, with a sinking heart, I remembered that it was going to be even more difficult, as that night was the full moon, and we would be spending it meditating. I had never been much good at all-night meditation vigils. I was too fond of my sleep. When we first met to discuss this pilgrimage, Asun Suchito had suggested that we should keep up the daily practice of his monastery. That meant doing daily morning and evening pujas and meditation. Sitting up in meditation until midnight on the quarter phases of the moon, i.e. once a week, and sitting on for most of the night on the full and new moons. This had all seemed reasonable, even inspiring, as an idea back in England. But now the reality was here. One day after arriving, still jet-lagged and woozy from the flight, we were going to try to sit up all night. At Chancecito Before his enlightenment as the Buddha, Prince Siddhartha is commonly believed to have seen four signs that caused him to take up the homeless life as a spiritual wanderer. An aged man, feeble and withered, a sick man in a pool of his own vomit and diarrhoea, and a corpse were the first three. Such states were the inevitable lot of all, his charioteer assured the naive prince. Then there was the fourth of these heavenly messengers, a holy man, sitting still and serene under a tree, wearing simple robes made from rags, one of those who had from time immemorial in India abandoned home, social position and security to meditate on life's meaning. 
This is the one who searches for the deathless, said the charioteer. Look how bright and clear are his features. From these sights, actual or conceived, Siddhartha Gautama got his cue to go forth from home to homelessness. In 1974, I had hitchhiked and bus-hopped overland from Amsterdam to India on an indefinite spiritual quest. India was going to be the place. Holy men under every tree, serenity, yoga, ashrams. Might even spend my days in some remote mountain cave. I got it right, in a way, though I'd imagined the signs wrongly. As it turned out, truth presented the same images as she had shown to the Buddha. Images of sickness and degeneration. It was no picture show, but rather four months lived out through days wandering with amoebic dysentery, while my assumptions about normal life steadily fell away. My life view had always been one in which I could do unpredictable things, but unpredictable things would not be done to me. But in India, human helplessness became apparent. There was no hiding it behind a technological smokescreen. And even more undermining was the fact that here, people were not running away from that impotence. In fact, they had a strange strength within their powerlessness. They knew or imagined God. For me, the last messenger appeared in Thailand, whence I fled once I had the strength and the wits to do so. A meditation class caught my attention in Chiang Mai. It presented the possibility of finding a calm inner space within which to check out my life. One class was just a taste. Then, early one morning, sitting in a cafe, I saw the bhikkhus from a local monastery walking on arms round. They were in a line, barefoot in the dusty road, walking towards me. The rising sun glowed through their brown robes. Each bhikkhu had only a simple alms bowl with him, and their faces were serene and gentle. Their walking was calm and unhurried. The weight of years of self-importance lifted off my heart. Something soared within me like a bird at dawn. So... Incredibly enough, I became a Buddhist monk. I ended up sitting in a little hut in the monastery for three years, on my own for most of the day with nothing much else to do except channel the mind's outgoing energies inward. It was a struggle. Strangely enough, the pain and the frustration, as well as the physical and emotional collapse from being in India, helped to keep me there. To leave would have required conviction that things would be better somewhere else. At that time in my life, conviction narrowed to one insight. Any suffering is mine wrought, and the way to end of it has to come through getting to its root. Instead of figuring out different places to go, I realised I had to come to terms with restlessness. Instead of muttering about the lack of interesting things to do in the stifling heat and poor food and hideous mind states, I realised that the crux of the matter, although hard to come to terms with, was my own aversion. Sometimes I'd recognise that I was holding out against things, and then I would relax or let go. That left the way it is, the pilgrim's way. On our first morning, we cautiously emerged from our rooms, paid our respects to the Buddha image, sitting serenely under his Bodhi tree in the courtyard, passed through the gate of the Pilgrim's Rest, and made our way up Chelmsford Road to New Delhi Railway Station. Making our way, because Chelmsford Road, as we timorously stepped into it, was in full flood. Buses, lorries and cars were in the mainstream, so we joined the other currents of cows, rickshaw drivers, horse and cycle, and pedestrians that wove around it. The currents surged and eddied around deserted roadworks, street vendors and stalls, great and small, selling the inconceivable 
the poignant, the quackish and the banal. Fruit, bangles, charms, toiletries, unknown substances in bottles and dishes with pictures of holy men beside them. We couldn't see too well through the crowds and our attention was largely taken up with keeping in touch with the pavement and dodging the traffic. To a foreigner, such chaos, even without the prospect of imminent death or mutilation from a snorting bus or careening motorcycle, is unnerving. In India, however, chaos is sacred. Shops and stalls bob in the flow, protected by their shrines, the saints, goddesses on the backs of tigers, and elephant-headed gods. The wild trucks are painted with images of Shiva. The senses are jangled by the clamour of bells, horns, klaxons and screeching music. Eye-grabbing forms of impossible figures crouched on the pavements and stalls, and nose-stabbing pungencies of horse-dung, human urine, sandalwood and diesel. But the locals are attuned and flow accordingly, are prepared to stop at a moment to inspect a stall, instinctively confident that the scooter behind them, with six people on it, will dart to the left, break, and weave into another opening. Everything moves fast, but no one is hurried. Cows have priority, move languidly in any direction, scavenging leaves, banana skins or newspapers smeared with curry. Buses bound for head-on collisions swerve at the last moment into the hair's breadth spaces that appear momentarily in the human torrent. Detached perspectives are not available. The personal space, a metre-wide buffer zone in which every Westerner dwells remote from contact in order to think and make the thousand minor decisions of the day, does not exist in this realm. The railway station, one of the great British imprints that India has made its own, was only a few hundred yards upstream. The British must have built railways in India as much for psychological reasons as to travel around, to plant order on top of the chaos that is made even more unnerving by India's ability to flow along in it. The grandest of them are like temples. However, since the Raj dissolved, railways, like every other cultural influence, have gloriously mutated to fit India. Now they bear the signs of their contradictory inheritance. Signs, timetables and manuals say one thing. The actual system works another way. This contrariness is so accepted as to pass without comment. Westerners getting irate about the discrepancy are regarded with the bemused patience that one would reserve for the antics of the mentally retarded. Our business-like trip to the railway station was an introduction to what becomes a major theme for the traveller in India. Following the main stream of people up the steps into the ticket hall, a tiny sign dangling from the roof about 15 feet up modestly stated, No entry! without a hope of carrying out this prohibition, or any indication of a reason why entry to the ticket hall should be forbidden. Never mind. A patient queue in the foreigner's ticket reservation office eventually rewarded us with an interview with a woman whose body, propped on one elbow on the desk and laconic remarks, suggested an utter indifference to the matter of our going anywhere. The shrug of one on shoulder activated a few words. All trains to Gorakhpur are cancelled. Nick's questions produced a few more shrugs. Perhaps we were supposed to rot into the soil here like all those before us. We moved to the back of the office to review the situation. We decided the trains must have been cancelled because of the rioting in Ayodhya, which lay in the direction of Gorakhpur. The Ayodhya business had been a bone of contention between Muslims and Hindus for about 500 years, ever since the Mughal Emperor Babur decided to build a mosque on a spot that devout Hindus believed to be the birthplace of Rama, the hero of the religious epic Ramayana. 
simmering over the sacrilege committed to Rama's holy place for centuries, Ayodhya had erupted in the last couple of months with Hindus threatening to tear down the mosque. Outbursts of impassioned fighting between them and the Muslim community had taken place in the city and in other parts of Uttar Pradesh, and the government was concerned that it could break out into a holy civil war. An elderly official at the back of the office was sympathetic to our scanning of the train tables. As we wanted to go to Gorakhpur, there was a train to Gorakhpur. A timetable was produced to back up this sympathetic reality and the details of the train conveyed. Back at the reservation desk we tried again. The train is cancelled. Hmm. This occasion exchanged between the two ends of the office. This time literal truth prevailed. We withdrew again to the timetables. Nick's finger hit Lucknow, capital of Uttar Pradesh, more than halfway to Gorakhpur. Maybe there's a train to Lucknow. Is this train to Lucknow running? he inquired of the man. Certainly. And could we get a train from Lucknow to Gorakhpur? Suitably chastened by his recent defeat, our friend came up with the polite waggle of the head. Who knows? The only reality that inevitably pertains. So the woman booked us a ticket to Lucknow where we hope to connect with the Who Knows Express. The Buddha image in the courtyard was still imperturbably sitting under his Bodhi tree when we made it back to the Buddhist pilgrim's rest, frazzled after a few frustrating hours attempting to get things done in the city. The afternoon swam with heat in some excruciating pop song that become this month's mantra. An overhead fan stirred it all and added its pulse. A few hours bathing all that made some quiet open space an attractive proposition, hence the roof. As evening fell, we moved upward towards the sky and the cool moon. The stillness and serenity of meditation seemed like a plausible option. But that had also been cancelled. We started off with some chanting, gallantly enough, but went soggy in no time. Nick began to droop soon and spent a few hours in various crumpled positions before disappearing. My mind teetered around in the darkness, occasionally glimpsing the Buddha gleaming under his electric light in the courtyard below, or prodded by the chomping and slurping of the upside-down demon. Although my lights dimmed by midnight, I managed to hang in dullness until an acceptable cave-in sometime after two o'clock. So much for the plan. But we were doing well. Managing to book a seat on a train for the ensuing evening that was going in the right direction was a considerable achievement. To expect more was hubris. Nevertheless, Nick decided to use the next day for further business-like activity. I put it down to the mild delirium of sleep deprivation. However, benevolence did seem to be the mood of the day when Mr. Dias, manager of the Pilgrim's Rest, being Sri Lankan, and a Theravadan Buddhist visited us in our rooms and offered to provide us with a daily meal. Buddhist daylight broke after the Indian night and we took comfort in the familiar gestures and attitudes. I stayed behind to converse on religious matters befitting a pilgrim, while Nick ventured off into the city. Nick Scott On our second afternoon, I went shopping in New Delhi. Most important was a pair of binoculars. The pair I had brought with me had been badly knocked by the men who were paid to throw airline baggage about, and now they had a big dent in the side and two images of everything when I looked through them. I was upset at the prospect of no binoculars. Seeing Indian wildlife was an important part of the trip for me, and it was with an increasing sense of gloom that I was passed from shop to shop, and then to little men in back streets mending cameras, without finding anyone who could repair them. Then I spotted a pair of Russian binoculars, 
old-fashioned and a bit on the heavy side, but better than the cheap plastic ones in the other shops. I had to bargain for them, acting only vaguely interested and starting to walk away twice until the price was reduced to something I could afford. I left the shop clutching my new binoculars and feeling relieved. The binoculars and a small guidebook to the birds of India were the only non-essential items I had allowed myself. Everything fitted into a small army green day pack, light enough to carry in the heat of India, that I had deliberately got well-worn and dusty-looking so as not to be attractive to thieves. I had cut things down to bare essentials, except, that is, for Ajahn Suchito's water purifier. This weighed a good kilo with the spare filter, and although I felt it was not needed, surely we were never going to go through the laborious process of pumping every glass of water we were offered. He still wanted to bring it along. There being no room in his pack, it was now in mine, and I hoped to be able to ditch it soon. In England, I had decided to get my clothes for the pilgrimage in Delhi, remembering the wonderful Cardi Emporium in Connaught Circus. Much of New Delhi had changed since my visit 16 years previously, but the Emporium was still as crazy as I remembered. Set out as an Indian imitation of a large Victorian department store, it was filled to overflowing with jostling crowds. Cardi is the movement inspired and begun by Gandhi to base the Indian economy on traditional Indian village crafts. Although most of Gandhi's ideas were ignored by the New Republic, Khadi manufacturing was encouraged, and stores built in cities and towns across India sell the village products. As with so much in India, they immediately fossilised, never developed any further, and remain to this day as they were set up. The products are wonderful. Hand-spun, hand-woven, hand-dyed materials sold as bolts of cloth, or made up into clothing, again in the villages, for sale very cheaply in the store. The stores, however, are a nightmare. There were counters selling everything from white cotton shirts, very thin and long for summer, through hats, traditional sleeveless jackets, embroidered shawls and saris, to large, thick woollen blankets for wrapping oneself in on cold winter nights all made of lovely earthy materials. The trouble was none of it could be seen, as each counter was engulfed by people pushing and shoving, reminding me of an English jumble sale ten minutes after opening. I had to fight my way to a counter just to find out what it stocked, and then, when I thought I had the right one, tried to get one of the Harris assistants to help me, only to be sent elsewhere. When I did eventually find what I wanted, I couldn't simply buy it, Instead, I was given a bill that had to be taken to a long queue for the cashier's cubicle. When I finally reached this, and luckily I had the right change, as for some unfathomable reason such cashiers never have change, I got a chitty. This had to be taken to the queue for the packaging counter, where eventually I could exchange my chitty for my purchases, which by now had been wrapped in brown paper and string. So I struggled round the store, befuddled by lack of sleep and jet lag, confused by India, driven by desire for all this fabulous stuff, while involved in a tortuous internal debate over whether I should be buying the boring and impractical white clothing that I thought I ought, or the really neat brown speckled cloth I actually wanted. We had discussed my attire before leaving. A monk had suggested I should go as an anagarika, someone halfway to becoming a monk. I asked Ajahn Shichito what he thought of the idea, in a way that made it easy to guess that I hoped he would dismiss it. However, Ajahn Shichito felt I should at least look like a religious pilgrim. You could either shave your head or wear white. Both ideas sent shivers through my mind. The white cloth would take so much work to keep clean, to say nothing of how silly I felt I would look. For some reason at the time, I thought it would be easier to shave my head, but I was now having doubts. In my befuddled state, part of me felt I should be getting white clothing, while another thought the idea silly and best ignored. 
so I came away with far too much in every shade from white to brown. My heart sank as I looked at all this stuff back at the rest house. The feeling of excitement and greed had ebbed, and I was left wondering what to do with it all. Eventually I decided to take some white, but mostly coloured clothing, and an off-white wrap near enough to white to wear when I might need to look like a pilgrim. The rest I would get rid of. As to shaving my head, I decided to leave that till Lumbini, the first of the holy places. That would be a more appropriate place to do it. It was also a good excuse to put it off. At Chancecito. Nick returned at tea time, frazzled and crestfallen with bundles wrapped in brown paper under his arms. We glumly received the results. It was far too much for a pilgrim to carry around India. Eventually Nick, trying to make something positive out of it, decided to take it as far as we were going on public transport and send the greater portion back to England as presents. Anyway, we took our leave of the manager of the pilgrim's rest and paid our respects to the Buddha sitting serenely illuminated by his half-smile in the Indian dusk. Above us all, the bat chomped on. After the babble and the light-bangled street market, we were in the half-lit gloomy cavern of the New Delhi railway station, where great one-eyed monsters hiss smoke. Somewhere in the catacombs, our names with the seat reservations were pinned on a notice board. I was in tow here. Nick, who knows, bundles and all, strode around and located our train, our carriage, our seats. Here we are, Bunty. Upper or middle berth. We could swing two platforms folded up against the wall of the carriage down to form beds. But first, I just wanted to gaze at the creatures of steam and iron, now mythic forms in the West, that still flourish in India. Our carriage, heading for Lucknow, was quite empty. It contained only one fellow passenger, a businessman in a suit, whose belly seemed to be attempting to escape over the top of his trousers. He had come from Lucknow to Delhi by train and was trying to return. Ayodhya was upsetting all the schedules. Although he had a car, he might not have been able to return by roads owing to the Ayodhya riots. If that were the case, he would have had to leave his car unattended in Delhi, and therefore liable to looting so eventually he left his car with an uncle and travelled by train. Unlike foreigners, he would have had to book the express several weeks in advance, a fine act of gambling with virtual realities. Business is not easy in India. No wonder his belly was trying to escape. By the time he concluded his remarks, we had left the Cyclops' cave. The night was taking over. We let down our sleeping platforms and I clambered onto the top one. The man in the suit opened a bag and took out an old whiskey bottle filled with water and slugged it back vigorously. Then he replaced the bottle in his bag, lay down on the berth opposite and took out a chain and lock. With this he fastened his bag to his wrist, slid the bag under the berth and floated off into sleep. Attempting to follow suit, I put my bag under my head and lay back back to the posture where the chaos of dreams is the norm, and wakefulness and functioning thought are considered a nuisance. Lying down we enter another reality. Not to enter it would be torment. Yet most of us accept only the waking reality, which grants us a semblance of control, until we delve inward. Sleep, or drugs and alcohol, are the only things we trust to take us back to the mystery. But India makes you aware of the pain of trying to walk clenched in your private and inert space. Here you have to let go. No matter how much the patterns of thought might recoil or fume, here the natural law of unpredictable change pertains. For me, that was the attraction of the place. In a matter of minutes, night's mystery waved a wand over the man in the suit. 
after the free fall he had landed, take on the fall of a giant wild pig. His snoring assumed a vigour and confidence far beyond any of his waking acts. It was heroic snoring, lusty, unabashed as warriors feasting after a battle. The belly had broken free at last, it shook and resounded. The throat rasped, the nose snorted, the lips not to be left out added their flapping. Surely an epic was being enacted in his other world. Reassessing how much sleep I would get this night, I felt myself let go and slip a little farther into India and then feel tenderly disposed towards our travelling companion, strangely glad for his escape from his suit and chained bag. Clackety-clack, 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 clackety-clack. Further chapters, read by the authors, will be published weekly as a free podcast called Where Are You Going? by Achan Sachito and Nick Scott, hosted on Podbean. There you can subscribe to receive emails announcing the release of each new chapter and other updates.